Wage theft is everywhere. According to the Australian Council of Trade Unions, or ACTU, it's now effectively a business model for many employers, baked into the system. The ACTU has identified no fewer than 27 ways in which bosses may rip off their workers, and they include crimes like failing to pay superannuation, failing to pay for breaks, failing to pay overtime, not paying for trial or training periods, and misclassifying workers as independent contractors. The biggest single ripoff, of course, is simply paying too little. And to quote the ACTU, employers are unashamedly advertising below award rates for vacant positions. Unions New South Wales conducted an audit of job advertisements with particular language criteria and found 78% of businesses advertise rates of pay below the minimum award wage. But wage theft isn't only carried out by dodgy small businesses and bullying restaurant owners. It's been exposed among big corporations like Woolworths and McDonald's, and it's rampant in universities, many of which turn over billions of dollars a year but rely on an army of casual workers. Wage theft is now a crime in Victoria, but many bosses will risk it because ripping off their workers is so lucrative. And to fight wage theft effectively, the task ahead is to build and rebuild bigger and more militant unions. To discuss the issue, I'm joined today by Ben Schneiders. Ben is an investigative journalist at The Age. His reporting has exposed more than two dozen companies for wage underpayment, including some of the biggest names in corporate Australia. He's a Walkley Award-winning reporter and has won the Industrial Relations Reporting Award four times. He regularly reports on work, social issues, politics and business. And most importantly for this discussion, he's just written a book entitled Hard Labour, Wage Theft in the Age of Inequality, published by Scribe and available in bookshops in coming months. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm, or Melbourne. So welcome, Ben. Hi, David. Thanks for having me on. Well, congratulations on the book. Books are always a labour of love. And you start this book on wage theft by talking about inequality. Uh, there's a wealth of statistics to back up your argument that Australia is becoming much more unequal. So, for example, you write that households worth more than $10 million have tripled from 2004 to 2018, while those worth less than zero because their debts exceed their assets have doubled to 1.4% of households. Now the top 1% in Australia control more wealth than the bottom 60% of households combined, or more than 15 million people. So why is this happening? Yeah, I think it's 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 a really important question, David. And I, I think, you know, I make the point in the book that inequality, in a similar way maybe to climate change, it's a, it's a little analogous to that, it, it's relatively slow moving. You, you, get, you get trends over literally decades that mean that a society is transformed from being relatively equal to far more unequal. So if you look at the you look at the angle of those graphs 
in, in the book or if you look at the increases in inequality, you know, if you looked at a five-year period, it might look like it's barely moving and there are five-year periods where it might go down a little bit or go up a little bit. But over the longer term, we've seen a really quite a dramatic change in the level of both income and wealth inequality in Australia. Of course, wealth inequality anywhere is, is far more unequal than it is in terms of income. You know, the returns that people can get from, from capital or for investments over time far exceed wages and you see this kind of almost exponential growth in wealth over time among the wealthiest people. And so the book the book describes that. Um, and I, I guess, you know, I can bear that to climate change in the sense that, you know, any one single event, it's linked towards climate change can be, can, can be argued about or can be uh, disputed or debated. But over time, we've seen this very real clear trend of slowly, in a sense, slowly increasing temperature um, until we get to a point now where we realise we're in a crisis. I think there's a similar thing happening with inequality. And, uh, you know, you can see that more acutely in, in some other countries in the United States where inequality is at level, levels last seen in the, the late 19th or early of the 20th century. You know, the so-called Gilded Age of robber barons and, 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 and infamous, you know, wealth concentration they're experiencing something similar now. And I, th- I think a lot of the, the, the pathologies or the, the, the problems in that society are, are related to, to inequality. But your broader question about why this has happened, I, I think in a lot of the, the rich world, the industrialised countries, the OECD countries, or, or however you want to characterise them, we've seen, a, we've seen a, a pretty dramatic shift in economic policy from the post-war period, from the late 1970s, 19. 80s onwards, what what's commonly called the neoliberal age or neoliberalism, or you know in Australia for a time called economic rationalism, and that that's that's got a number of I guess features you could say. It, it, there's a lot of debate about how you would define that, but you know a, a, a focus on free markets, deregulation, privatisation, and those kinds of policies, and we, we saw that in the 1980s onwards really in Australia. Now that's done two things. I think it's made you know. It's, it's created a lot of wealth, but it's, it's been a very uneven, unequal process. So we've seen, you know, a gradual, substantial increase in inequality over that time in Australia. And as a result, Australia's in the top third of countries for income inequality in the OECD. Now, I don't think that's the perception of Australia from Australians. Is that sort of longer term uh, egalitarian idea or ideal in Australia, which, you know, there was... There's a lot of issues with the post-war period, but there was some truth about that. There was greater material inequality uh, than there is now. I was particularly struck by a graph that you use that shows how the gap in pre-tax income between the top and bottom 10% shrank steadily from the end of the First World War until the late 70s, early 1980s, and then began to rise again, and, and it's still rising. Now, I look at that and I think that date's significant because for me, I think of the late 70s, early 80s, in particular the early 80s, and I think of the prices and income accord between the new Labour government of Bob Hawke and Paul Keating and the union movement. Is that how you read that graph as well? Yeah, I I think, you know, I I rely quite heavily on... um, Thomas Piketty, I, I read his book, I, I got through it all, <laughs> Capital in the, in the 21st century. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's, it doesn't relate to Australia particularly or, or really at all. 
but it, it gives a very kind of um, detailed analysis using economic statistics and economic history at what happened in much of the world and, and how the kind of the, in, in, in reality, the post-war period saw a great kind of levelling uh, and of incomes, a, a great kind of reduction in wealth and income inequality. And really what I think you saw from the late 70s onwards, in particular, you know, and this, this is true of Australia, was, was almost like a revolt from the owners of businesses, you know, to use, use the terminology, capital, uh, against the system as it was. You know, the returns, you can see in some of the data that um, the wages share of the income was at, was at record highs in the late 70s. There was a lot of industrial disputation. There were some very significant wage increases you know i think the metal workers at one point in the early 80s won a 20 percent wage rise there was there was all there was almost a problem the way that the business saw it and government saw it of the unions being too powerful and that was a period of a time and we saw a real rolling back of that from the 1980s onwards now the the hawk period and the accord period i think it's a more complicated picture than you saw in United States or the UK, where Thatcher and Reagan demolished the unions, took you know took out the miners in the in the in the UK was Thatcher's was part of Thatcher's legacy, um, aggressive cutting of corporate taxation and the like. Um, in the US, there was similar moves. I think against the air traffic controllers from Reagan early in his term. Here we had the Accord, where you know unions in effect agreed to real wage cuts and a reduction in in industrial disputation in effect. Um, in exchange for, you know, what was called the social wage, things like Medicare, increased welfare payments. So we got a, we got a kind of, uh, I think, you know, compared to similar countries, we got a kind of watered-down neoliberalism. And it was done in partnership with the unions. Now, I think that there's a lot of... You can, you can talk about that endlessly, about, you know, who, who, who is to blame for that or was that a good thing or a bad thing? But, I, I, you know, that to me is the clearest reading of, of what occurred when you look at the kind of the macro data for that period. You, you see almost, you know, there's a relationship between what occurred in the 80s and an increase in inequality and a reduction in, 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 in strikes and a reduction in, in union membership and union coverage in the economy. So it, it's clearly there was a seismic change from the 1980s onwards and the accord was an important part of that process. But I think also the economic policies that went along with the accord, the floating of the dollar, the opening up of what was a you know kind of a semi-closed economy with with high tariffs and, and and industry protection, that was all really done away with from that period onwards. Yeah, and I think uh, that that's absolutely right. And I think the working class movement uh, and workers generally are still paying a price for that in terms of, as you say, growth in inequality, a reduction in services and of course a reduction in union membership. So this flows through to wage theft. Now, I don't think wage theft is new. It's not unique to this period. I'm sure historically we can find examples going back in this country to the beginning of wage labor, but clearly it's become a big deal. So how did you as a journalist first become aware of wage theft? And did you have any inkling about how many horror stories you were going to find? Yeah, it's a really, um, it's a really good question, David. And, and absolutely, like I think, I think you know, wage theft or wage underpayment's been a feature from the start. You know, that, that there's, there's no, there's no question about that. Um, and also, it's not, it's not an easy thing to kind of measure. You know, people don't tend to um, <laughs> um, admit that they've been doing it, or 
you know, there's not survey work done over time or anything like that. So on, on one degree, there's a kind of an element of, it's kind of anecdotal, you can see the, the change. But talking to kind of union officials and um, workplace lawyers who, who started their careers, say, in the 1990s, so, you know, they describe a very different kind of world where there just wasn't th- this level of wage underpayment. It was, it was, it was a thing, but it wasn't, it wasn't common. It's very different. It's clearly very different now, 20, 30 years later. But in terms of my own background, I, I'd been the, the workplace reporter or industrial relations reporter in the late 2000s, um, sort of around 2007 or eight, just after the work choices period. And I did that for about four years. Really, I was doing a lot of reporting on the GFC and it was around um, unemployment and job losses. There was quite a lot, big focus on the building industry with the Labor government and the construction laws um, the, you know, and the fate of the ABCC. But wage theft and wage underpayment just really wasn't a feature of my work. And I could have been missing that, but it wasn't something where people were coming to me much with at all. There was not much the unions were talking about it. So that was that was then. Probably five, five, or, five or so years later, by the mid-2015s, that really had started to change. I was in a different role in my current job. And, you know, you started to look into it. I was looking at the treatment of temporary migrant workers and you realise it, it was a huge, huge issue. I got a tip off from a, someone of Taiwanese background um, who'd worked in insecure work and you could see that there was... This is really what I started doing. From that, I started looking at foreign language websites and you could see that jobs were being advertised regularly to people on temporary visas at half the half the legal rate the the middlemen or the the you know the, the contractors would tell these workers that these jobs are black jobs i.e you know don't expect to be paid the legal rate that was that was that was the language in in, in chinese for this type of work um, and you just could see and it was across all parts of i guess service or low wage economy um it could be nail salons it could be food courts it could be construction or parts of construction it was just rife. You could just see all these jobs advertised at, you know, eight, ten dollars an hour, twelve dollars an hour, when the casual going rate should have been twenty, twenty-five dollars at that time. And so that was my first look at that. I spent a number of months working away on it and did a series on that. Around the same same time, we saw the Seven Eleven expose by one of my colleagues, Adele Ferguson, and from there the stories just really started flowing. Did a lot more work on, you know, wage theft in horticulture, in retail and fast food involving big business with deals between, say, McDonald's and Woolworths and the SDA, which involved wage underpayment, and and just a range of other areas. It was re- you really got a sense that it was it was you know it was just rife that, that, that there was just across large swathes of the economy, and since then you've seen you know major corporates declare or be dogged in to the, the workplace ombudsman for wage theft. And it, it, it's, it's an issue where there would be, you know, on some estimates, you know, many hundreds of millions, probably billions of dollars of wage theft a year across the Australian economy. Now, the core of your book is three different areas of wage theft, which you go into in quite great detail, where you've spent a lot of time talking to yep. people. At the risk of saving us all the bother of buying your book and reading <laughs> it, <laughs> would you... <laughs> Would you like to sort of tell us about the ways in which bosses have been ripping off workers based on those case studies that you, you've put time into? 
Yeah, yeah, no, um, yeah, please buy the book. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, there's, there's three three main elements, as, as, you, as you know. And um, one, one is hospitality. I did a lot of work over many years looking at underpayment in the hospitality sector, in particular in restaurants. And what was interesting about that was the types of underpayment were pretty similar. Sometimes it was just paying someone the wrong rate or the wrong classification to, to a healthy extent. But a, a big feature of hospitality was, I guess, the the systemic use of, of unpaid overtime. So you'd have workers doing 20, 30 hours a week where they're, you know, their pay had been bought out. They had had bought out their um, their casual uh, and penalty rates, and they were meant to get a higher rate to compensate for that. But the, the, the law is very clear: you can't be paid less than the award if there's that buyout. But these workers were working 20, 30 hours. The, the scale of the underpayment, you, you know, just pretty basic calculations, could could easily be six, seven, eight hundred dollars a week if you were working a sixty or seventy hour week, and that was quite common. You know, in some of the top restaurants at busy times of the year, a chef, you know, could be working 80, 90 hours a week. It was, it, they, they regularly work 16-hour days. It was, it, you know, it was almost Dickensian. And, and the pay rates might be, for that, they might get paid, say, $60,000 a year. So the wage underpayment in those situations is just, just huge. So that was a feature across hospitality. What I found interesting and I focus on in the book is really the different business models that you have businesses owned by private equity, hospitality businesses owned by private equity, which is a business model where an owner typically using a lot of debt will own a business for a short period, maybe three to five years, cut costs, dress it up, and then sell it for a huge profit. It's, it's, it takes kind of the, the economic system or the economic logic to its most extremes so you'd have hospitality businesses owned under that model um there was one celebrated case um for a restaurant in melbourne called heston dinner by heston owned by the well linked to the british chef heston blumenthal who's pretty well known in that world he's a michelin star restaurant um that kind of thing its business the workers were employed through a business owned on the Caribbean island of Nevis, which is a which is a, a notorious tax haven. Uh, they, their legal employer was there was no way to know who actually owned the business. Ownership is obscured through laws in, in Nevis that hide ownership. It was owned through um, the businesses linked through other businesses that were owned through tax havens of like the Isle of Man or you know in other parts of the low tax or low disclosure jurisdictions. So you could see how the industry was structured in these kind of ways. And then you would have other models where you would have, I guess, you know, like to characterize it as a kind of the tyrant chef model. You have a chef who's risen from humble beginnings to take over and then, then run, run the business with an iron fist. There's a, there's kind of the, the own industry logic, which people buy into that, you know, I experienced deprivation or wage theft when I was younger, I worked really hard and now that's, that's how it should be, you know, and that, that kind of passes on over the generation. So there's all these different business models. The impact of it all was that you were just seeing, you know, chronic levels of, of overwork, you know, people would report significant issues around depression, um, alcohol and drug abuse, and just pretty horrific working conditions. And, and all those caricatures of restaurant life, people being yelled at and abused and all that, that was a feature of it as well. It was pretty horrific conditions in total. What were the other two areas that you focused on? 
Yeah, and, and the second part was, was a, I think, probably the most significant set of stories I did in this area, which was over time we spent several years reporting on wage deals between big business and the SBA union or the shoppies, which um, are a socially conservative union that's had a, a reputation for being more agreeable, more to work with businesses. When we started, there was a there was a researcher from the NTU who had a long-term interest in what the SBA had done, uh, a guy by the name of Josh Cullinan. He started doing work looking at the mechanics of these deals and they were showing that there was significant wage underpayments in the deals. The agreements were trading off workers' penalty rates, overtime, junior rates, casual rates, the works for really small amounts of compensation. And and the net impact of that was that you were seeing at the bigger businesses wage theft of the order of tens of millions of dollars every year. So that was at places like Coles, Woolworths, McDonald's, KFC, uh, you name it. Some of the biggest employers in the country, the, the top three employers, private sector employers in the country are McDonald's, Woolworths and Coles. Like that, this is where a lot of people work. There's a lot of part-time and casual work. But the SDA in cahoots with the employers was doing deals that left half the workforce every time, at least half the workforce every time, underpaid. They would present these agreements to the Fair Work Commission, which was meant to measure or check that they didn't leave people paid below the award. There's a there's a, a test in the Fair Work Act called the Better Off Overall Test, which is meant to ensure that if you work, you're paid more than the minimum rates of the award, whether it's retail, fast food, hospitality, or whatever. The Fair Work Commission, when presented with a joint submission from the SDA and a big employer, typically just tick these agreements off. But the reality was that they shouldn't have. These agreements should have been rejected because they left so many people underpaid. Cullinan and a few other people, a young trolley operator from Brisbane, a guy called Duncan Hart, who's actually a socialist activist, they challenged the Coles Agreement in the Fair Work Commission, appealed it all the way to the full bench of the Fair Work Commission. And the Fair Work Commission in 2016 found that Coles had, the Coles Agreement had failed the better off overall test and it left some workers significantly underpaid. So it was a really substantial case. Coles had top barristers representing them, so did the SDA. They were all sitting on the bench together, the SDA and Coles. Well, on the other side, there was Josh, who was a NTU organiser, and Duncan Hart, who was a young guy and uni student from Brisbane. And they had a pro bono lawyer, Siobhan Kelly, and they beat them. They won. They won this major case. And the ramifications for that was that it completely stopped these deals in the sector. All the agreements had to be renegotiated, whether it was McDonald's, Woolworths, um, Coles, all these big companies, and they they had to comply with the award. They had to have the award compliant agreements. Some employers didn't want to bargain, didn't want to get a new agreement, and they ended up ending up on the award. At McDonald's, the underpayment levels were just huge. Like they were, they were employing lots of young people. There was no weekend penalty rates or, or next to no weekend penalty rates, next to no night rates. We we're probably talking at least $100 million a year in underpayment at McDonald's own stores and its franchisee stores. Um, so it was a really significant issue. The underpayment levels were less in the supermarkets. So they were paying better rates than in fast food. But in places like Domino's, you know, the pizza business, 
their, their agreement was just was just at a terrible level. It was far below the award, and it, it just sat there in place for years and years. Deutsche Bank, who were doing research on Domino's for their clients, you know, showed that the underpayment was something in the order of like thirty or forty million dollars a year. That's what Domino's was saving from an SDA agreement. So our, our work over that time, and and this is detailed in the book, looked at all that, all these deals, and all that underpayment involving large swathes of the of the workforce. Probably, probably at least a quarter of a million people were underpaid from those deals. That's appalling. Absolutely appalling. And often when you go past Domino's or go in, you wonder how their pizzas are so cheap. And obviously their pizzas are cheap and their profits are high because of the squeeze on the workers. And the final sector was in horticulture, agriculture. Is that correct? That's, that's right. Yeah. So this is, this is really looking at, you know, the the conditions on farms have been really, it's probably the worst sector in terms of bad labor conditions, wage underpayment, uh, anywhere in the country. It was really looking at the campaign from the mid-2010s onwards by the what became the United Workers Union or what was the National Union of Workers to organise these workers. And you could see at the start of that campaign, it was very common for people to be paid a handful of dollars an hour. A lot of the, a lot of the workers were migrant workers. And really, and this is another feature of the Australian labour market that probably doesn't get enough for the Australian Australian life doesn't get enough attention. There's probably to 100,000 people in Australia that are undocumented workers. We, we think of that as a problem. We hear about that as a problem in, or as an issue in the United States or, or, or Europe or whatever. But Australia has this very large, it's, it's relatively smaller than most countries, but very large, you know, workforce with no rights, very easily exploitable that are working on farms, you know, trying to escape from border force, coerced into relationships via contractors and, and really kind of, you know, getting very low levels of pay and then having to pay a lot of that in exorbitant transport fees or accommodation, people being crammed in, many people to a room in the regional black back blocks. That, that all still is going on. There, there's, there's no question that there's still quite a lot of wage theft in the sector. But you've seen this campaign in an area where it was regarded as next to impossible to organise these workers. And... It's grown into quite a substantial union. There's been a lot of success in organising workers under the Seasonal Workers Program. You know, people from Vanuatu and Samoa um, who, have, who have joined the union. And there's been much more compliance with minimum wage laws now and even attempts to bargain for agreements at particular employers. So that, that's been quite a substantial pushback from part of the union movement. And the outcomes have been really quite something. That helps challenge the common idea, which is obviously wrong, that migrant workers are somehow more submissive, more willing to take poor conditions or or poor wages, that the workers themselves can be part of the solution. That's probably particularly the case in horticulture and agriculture. What kind of stories were you getting from the workers in those industries? I think that's absolutely the case. Like, I don't, I don't think there's any kind of like, you know, like it, it, it all, it all varies from person to person and worksite to worksite. But it's very common for people to, you know, informally, like in this case, to be more formally organised, but also to informally organised. Like, like in hospitality, a lot of the people I, I got to know were migrant workers on on, on temporary visas who, in effect, were organising themselves. And you know, I have to be careful about 
you know, their identities, obviously, because yeah, like the reality is if you're on a temporary visa in Australia, if you lose your job, you've got a very short period to find another sponsor or you're out of the country. So you're, you're almost, or you're, you're basically bonded to an employer. If you come from, you know, parts of the world, like where there's a lot of poverty or whatever, you're desperate to stay in Australia. But these people are incredible. A lot of these people are incredibly brave. Like they would, they would meet me, they would talk to me, they would provide documentation, they'll provide evidence. And, and that was what drove these stories on. Like there, there was no sense that, that migrant workers or temporary or workers on temporary visas were, were passive, quite the opposite. And you can see that in the farms as well. Like the United Workers Union in particular, you know, tapped into some incredible networks of, of people from Pacific Islands who were very strong, were, were very keen to kind of work together and improve their position and to ensure they're paid correctly. Like, a, it, it's obviously very hard. It's, it's very hard to organise uh, workers on temporary visas because of that inbuilt precarity into the system. But it, I think it's wrong to say that they're, they're hostile to, to wanting to work together or to, be, to improve their position. Now, it's a long way from dominoes or from a, a field of uh, lettuces to universities, but universities like to portray themselves as calm oases of reason and civilization, and it's becoming increasingly clear that the reality is quite different. There are apparently as many as 21 universities currently under investigation for wage theft, and you've actually published some quite important insights into this sector just earlier this week in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, looking at the way in which the casual workforce at universities have been and continue to be treated. On the other side of the ledger, there have been some really important wins over wage theft in the university sector, where casuals have organised and have won tens of millions of dollars in back pay from just here in Melbourne, universities including RMIT, Melbourne University and Monash. So it's not dominoes, but it's still wage theft. So what's going on in this sector? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the piece that was published this week, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to researchers and people in the sector. And it's really quite a, it's quite an outlier in one sense. It's, it's, it's quite a complex picture of what's going on here. Like when we're talking about farms or, or bring fast food, you know, all, all that work is important. But, you know, there are people that um, are desperate for work. It's kind of relatively low skill. It doesn't involve 10 years of training as it does in the university sector. And that's not to detract from it in any other way. That's just an observation. But when you look at the university sector and you compare it to other, other I guess, similar kind of fields, the, the levels of insecure work are just extraordinary. Like, I've, I'm working on something at the moment. Every major Victorian university, bar one, more than half the staff are on contract or fixed-term deals. What's a pretty easy definition of insecure work? Half the workforce, uh, some over sixty percent. That's 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 extraordinary. So I think I think there's a number of things going on in, in some of some areas like scientific research or research in general. The lack of federal government funding is is a big part of the equation. There's obviously funding to universities, which is part of the equation as well. But I think. It's, it's easy just to excuse that as the cause of this. I think you know some of this university practice of employing people on temporary gigs or or, or, or temporary work this this has been a this has been a long practice. I, I have a you know I last studied at university a couple of decades ago and you could see the start of that 
already then. It's, it's obviously got worse, um, and the funding is part of that. But their decisions by university management on how they respond to issues around funding, and you know, the, the cost is borne by people who have to kind of cycle from gig to gig um, with no job security, whether it's yearly contract renewals for work that goes on for three or four years, which is an insane situation to put someone in, or casuals that are let go at the end of semester and then rehired three, four months later. All the risk appears to be worn by the employee. It's a really, really big issue. You'd expect the level of casual work should be probably at least half, if not more, the level that it is now. So these are, these are choices. Like, you know, I've been speaking to the NTU in the last few weeks as well. And, you know, they make the reasonable point that all businesses or enterprises have uncertain funding. They go from year to year having to manage budgets. But the university sector has responded to this in a way where they've, they're using much higher levels of temporary or insecure work than elsewhere. It's a major, major issue. And like, and like you said, there's been some significant wins about underpayment. But yeah, it, it's still in a, in a really bad way, I'd say. And obviously the wins, whether it's in the sectors that you focus on in the book or whether it's in the university sector, depend on union organisation. But you note in the book that unions today aren't just smaller than the heyday of the, the 60s and the 70s, but, and I quote, they're exhausted after decades of decline and attacks. There is little optimism or energy among them. So what do you think needs to happen to rebuild numbers, density and fighting spirit? I mean, for me, I look at the teachers, nurses, public sector workers in New South Wales, for example, striking and taking to the streets. Where do you take your inspiration from? Yeah, it's a, it's a really big question and it's... And it's very hard. You know, I think the unions are in a very difficult position. But you can see you can see some green shoots, like in those those areas that you described. We start to see more industrial action. You know, and I think you know you can really positive that you could see horticulture workers or agriculture workers get organised and and to push back against their exploitation. Um, I think it's you know it's incredible to see a handful of people at first take on exploitative agreements in retail and fast food and then form their own union, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, to, I guess, challenge the, the conditions in the sector. So there's a lot of things where there, there, are, there, there are some positive things going on. But as a whole, I think, you know, that's, I think that's my take. The, the movement has been exhausted. There's been decades of restrictions on organising. There's been decades of anti-union laws to varying degrees. And... We've seen this, you know, and I think, you know, there's some bigger economic trends around, you know, the globalisation has seen manufacturing diminish as a, as a, as a part of the Australian economy. Um, that was a decision, but there was also, you know, some things, you know, the rise of China and, and the like. And so unions that were historically very important are just a shadow of their former self. Like, at the start of the discussion, we talked about the AMWU, the metal workers winning 20% pay rises in the 1980s or the early 80s. Now that union's only got several tens of thousands of members nationally. It, it's, it's been much diminished by economic change, anti-union laws and the like. It's, in no, it's not in a position yet to really to, to reverse that or to push back. I think the union movement, there's been too much of a focus, I think, over time probably on party politics or parliamentary politics or parliamentary outcomes. And that, of course, is important, you know, 
you need numbers in parliament to change laws and the like but resources can also be pushed into having a crack at some of these really hard to organize industries having to win like the the, the farm workers campaign would cost UWU a lot of money there wouldn't be the automatic payoff but it, it's the the reason for existence for unions i'd say to to organize badly exploited workers and, and to improve their lives to build build connections to build solidarity and that's what's happened so i think this question is a strategy and, and direction that are, that are worth exploring and where there's probably been mistakes made and then there's also been the things that have been i guess done to the union movement which is uh, in particular through the howard government years changes to workplace laws attacks on organized labor whether it was the waterfront dispute in 1998 and the the attempt to really successful attempt to reduce the influence of the MUA and then later the CFMU and so it's it's been a it's been a coordinated campaign you know we saw in the 1980s what was and I I write about this quite some length in the book about the rise of the new right groups like the HR Nickel Society they really wanted to change Australia uh, from what had been you know one with relatively equal levels of income distribution to a different society. They wanted to, you know, in their words, kind of free up the economy, to free up labour regulations, and they, they, they largely succeeded. The HR Nickel Society is not particularly important anymore. It's, it's largely irrelevant, but that's because what they wanted in the 1980s, they got. It's a, it's a de-unionised Australia where bargaining occurs at an enterprise level, uh, not across industries. It's not industry-wide wage claims. It's a, it's, a, it's a country with a labour movement where barely 10% of the workforce in, in the private sector are in unions. And back in the 80s, it was more like half the workforce. It's, hmm. it's a dramatic change over time. There's no question that there's been a retreat and a, a decline. But I think it's also clear that people join unions when they think unions are f- going to fight and there's a chance of winning. So in areas like education... Teachers unions always report big increases in union membership when they actually take part in in struggle and and disputation. And I think at the core of that for me is the willingness to take on the law and take back the right to strike, not through parliamentary means. As you said, that can be very slow and cumbersome and sometimes doesn't deliver to the union movement at all, but through direct action. So the teachers, for instance, in New South Wales very recently were told not to go on strike and defied that ruling and and came out. And it does occur to me as we talk that you yourself were almost certainly part of a similar show of defiance some years ago at the age where our union, the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance, because I'm a proud long-term member as well, actually went out for a week in defiance of the law and stood solid on the picket lines without actually receiving any fines. So am I right in saying you were actually part of that? I, I, I was, yeah. That was in 2017. And so the you know the media industry over the sort of really from the period from 2008 to the decade onwards, there was significant job losses and you know, redundancy around nearly every year at what was Fairfax Media, where I worked, which is now owned by Channel 9. So we had we had several strikes during that period, and all of them were unlawful. Like we would just walk off the job at various times, almost in protest at what we saw as the kind of the gutting of our of our, our newsrooms and, and, and 
you know, what was being done to our colleagues. And, and the most significant of those strikes was the 2017 one where we worked off, walked off for a week. That was an unlawful strike. Um, and by letter of the law, we could have been individually prosecuted and, and the MEAA could have been prosecuted as well. And there's some of the provisions of the law in Australia where the, the right to strike is, is, is really severely limited. You have to go through a very cumbersome ballot process. We're actually going through one now where we've applied for a ballot to go on strike because um, we're in negotiations with, with nine. And, you know, it can take upwards of or at least a month. You, you, you've got to send out ballots, you've got to endorse different types of action, you've then got to give three days notice at least to to go on strike and that that's so that's quite a process uh, a process but yeah it, for much of australia's history if not all of it the, the right to strike has been severely limited but there's been varying times very high levels of industrial action you can go back to the abs the australian bureau of statistics and you can look at the level of industrial disputation or strikes in the 1980s and it's at extraordinary levels when you compare it to now. Like, it, like on a on a per ten thousand or per hundred thousand worker level or by industry, like it appeared that people were on strike nearly all the time <laughs> in the nineteen seventies, eighties, and now they're very rare. You know, there's there's been very there's a, there's a more recent uptick that I think is interesting. But over the last decade, there's been very few nationally important strikes. The last one was probably. Qantas dispute of 2012, and and in reality that was Qantas taking industrial action. Maybe it's 2011. Sorry, but that was Qantas grounding its fleet. It was the employer taking industrial action against some of the unions or that were were taking low level industrial action at the time, and that successfully that worked successfully for Qantas. The um the Fair Work Commission intervened because there's a provision about when a dispute causes significant economic harm, um, and the grounding of its fleet obviously did that because Qantas is a major airline. It's got about two-thirds of all traffic. But besides that, I can't, it's hard to think of a major strike in the last decade. That's undoubtedly true. I am interested, though, in what you mentioned in terms of the current uptick. It's very difficult to get a really thorough picture. And, of course, the <clears> statistics <throat> lag. It's going to be months, many, many months, before we get ABS statistics that indicate whether this is actually the case but anecdotally from media and social media there does seem to be something of a pickup in the level of industrial disputation at the moment speaking professionally as someone who follows this very closely is that your impression too it, it is yeah no, I, think, I think that that is i think there's i think there's a different like you know it's it's always partly a feel thing um you know, it'll be borne out or not by by the data in time, but it feels like there's a shift in in mood out there, and we're seeing more industrial action. We're starting to see in unionised sectors, we're starting to see more more and larger wage claims. I think, you know, the the current period of you know really quite high inflation, I think there is a there is a bit of a groundswell going on where people are pushing back against the reduction in living standards, and you know, like we we do draw a lot of kind of cultural and, and, and other sorts of influence from the United States. Now, you've seen some pretty significant from blog rebellions in the United States, including the organising you know, of a, a big Amazon site in New York. There's been a range of strikes there. You know, there's been some significant industrial action in Britain. And then we've got some public, big sub-public sector disputes here as well. I think there's some rumbling 
in terms of industrial action and, and industrial activism, I guess. Whether that manifests itself into something bigger and broader is the big question. Well, let's hope it does, because as a socialist, I love class struggle, and as an industrial reporter, you like to be kept busy, so it's a, <laughs> it's a win-win situation. Uh, my final question is something you mentioned in your introduction to your book, that speaking as a reporter, you received more pushback and criticism on the wage theft issue than on any other you've reported on. So what did that pushback look like and why did you cop so much heat? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, so I report about other things as well. And, you know, quite often in the last few years, religious abuses or, or things around money and religion and, and issues around corruption. I, I'm still kind of, you know, you try to kind of make sense of why particular things happen and, and, and to work out a way to, to have an understanding of them. I think the tension between the interests of business owners and workers is just fundamental in our, in our system. And that's why I've always enjoyed or, or found it an interesting area to, to work in, working on industrial relations because it matters. It's important it's about people's livelihoods, their lives, their working lives, which, are, which is, you know, consumes a lot of, their, a lot of our time. Um, it's about the interests of industry and employers. It's they're, they're fundamentally important issues and there's there's often a fundamental conflict in interest isn't there between you know wanting to maximize your profit and also wanting to be paid fairly or be paid more so when you start writing about that and when you start getting into the kind of the heart of that tension i think you inevitably it's it's probably not surprising that you get quite a pushback you know when you're writing about the wage theft that's been done by major companies you know you're talking about substantial interests you know, this is tied to people's executive futures and, and, and their, their bonuses, you know, how well the company performs or goes. It's it's very bad for business to be to linked to wage theft or to be accused of underpayment or what have you, particularly if you've got a business that is more customer-facing. You know, like people don't really want to go to a restaurant if they think the people that are making the food are being ripped off and exploited. So you, there'd be all sorts of pressure that would come back to me in, in all sorts of ways it would be legal threats i think you know there's, there's you know and you get kind of shielded from this to some degree but there's, there's pressure put on um senior management and editors um, and that kind of filters through to you you just get you get a real sense of kind of being um and encroaching on you um and in, in all sorts of varieties of ways um and i think that's probably the fundamental way to for me to understand that and when you write about some other things it's just not the same it's quite often just not the same intensity or the same the same pushback oh well stay strong and i hope the nine lawyers and your editors are uh, are backing you up all the way thank you very much for your time ben today i really appreciate it the book is on pre-sale through scribe so people i believe should be able to put in orders online now and it will hopefully be in a good bookshop near you in several months time so i wish you luck with the book and thank you again for your time Yeah, thank you, David, and thanks for having me on.